Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with author James Bradley. During our conversation, James talks about the path that led him to write his first book, Flags of Our Fathers, the historical revelations of his third book, The Imperial Cruise, and the themes of his most recent book, The China Mirage. All right. Well, James, uh, first of all, uh, as I usually like to say for, for guests that come on the show, I wanted to, to first just thank you for, for the time. Um, as I mentioned also, I'm a huge fan of, of your work, um, and it's a pleasure to have you on the exchange. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, I w- would love to kick things off uh, also, as I usually do, by kind of learning a little bit about you and your background. Um, I've read a bit about where you grew up, growing up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, and um, sort of getting into history later in your life, or at least getting into writing works of, of history later in your life. But would love to uh, maybe start things off by learning a little bit about how you got interested in history from the beginning and sort of what, what happened in your life that launched you in the trajectory of being a, a historian who writes the books like, that you have. Well, I never thought I would uh, write a book uh, from much of my life, but I didn't realize it, but I read a lot. Uh, early on, I, I saw my mother reading, and I saw her telling stories about Russian princes and people that uh, didn't live near us, but uh, I realized came out of books. And I had great teachers who motivated me to read books. So throughout my 20s and 30s, uh, now I look back and realize I was reading more than other people uh, did. Mm. And I was reading histories. And um, my father died in 1994. And we found letters that that no one else had read where he talked about the flag raising being the... um, greatest moment of his life. My father is the guy in the middle of the picture of the Americans raising the flag on Iwo Jima. And I wanted to know why my father had never talked about this. So I called up veterans of Iwo Jima and and members of the other families of the flag raisers, and the story was just so fantastic, I I thought I should put it down, and there began my writing career. I know in reading a little bit about how that first book, Flags of Our Fathers, was created, I, I believe you were rejected something like 26 or 27 times from various publishers. Is that is that correct? 27 turndowns over 26 months. Hmm. That's easy to say, but it was a little difficult to take <laughs> at the time. How did you overcome that? Did you, at any point during that process, think, you know, maybe me writing history books is just not in the cards or were you just fully determined to, to make this happen if, if at all possible? I had a lot more confidence in the story than I did in myself. I mean, first of all, you're starting with the number one most reproduced photo in history. So, you know, I started with a celebrity photo and then when I realized all the characters that were involved in this photo Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and General MacArthur and John Wayne and on and on and on. You know, the tallest bronze monument in the world. 
the number one selling stamp, the most reproduced photo. It was larger than life. And I just, I thought it was a story that people would be interested in. But 27 publishers wrote me letters saying that uh, it was a loser. When did you know that that was likely going to be a successful book? Was that sort of immediately after it was published? Or when, when did you have an idea that uh, it, it was accomplishing some of your objectives from the outset? You know, I thought it was going to be a successful book uh, four or five years before the book came out. I called Steven Spielberg's office three years before the book came out and said a big book is coming. Hmm. I, I pitched... One of the big reasons I was turned down so many times is I presented the book as the New York Times number one bestseller. <laughs> and publishers, and I did, 20, you know, 27 publishers. I said, this will be a New York Times bestseller because you're starting with the number one photo. It's already sold into people's minds, and I'm the only one in the world with the, with the story. Mm. I don't mean to be you know, making myself big here. It's just... My dad raised the flag on Iwo Jima. He was the longest survivor. I had the inside story on the most famous picture, and I knew no one else did. Mm -hmm. So I pitched it as a New York Times number one bestseller, which it was the uh, uh, second week it was out. Mm -hmm. And during the process, when you are pitching that book initially, is all of your research already done at that point, or were you still in the middle of trying to put the book together? I was in the middle of trying to put the book together. Um, you know, I was halting back and forth. And after every refusal, after every turndown, I would, uh, you know, go back and tune things up and rewrite until finally someone gave it a go. I think one of the things that I've always been drawn to in your work is just learning things about history that I wasn't taught in college or in high school history classes. And the Imperial Cruise, to me, really sticks out as, as a great example of that. Um, I, I reference that book a lot in conversations just in speaking about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. history. Um, one of the points that I, I often make, which I was embarrassed to admit I didn't know about until I was in my mid-20s, was... Uh, the U.S. involvement in the Philippines and how many people, how many Americans died in that colonization, how many Filipinos died during that time. I would love if you maybe could just give a little bit of context around what that time period was about, what we were doing in the Philippines, and why it seems like that's not a more widespread uh, note of history that's, that's uh, consumed by Americans or known by most Americans. I think we like happy endings. I, I think Vietnam has been washed out of the history books. Uh, the Philippines has been washed out of the history books. Very few people see Theodore Roosevelt as a war president running America's first quagmire out in uh, the Far East and in, in the Philippines. And it's just erased. I, I, um, I really do think that a lot of American history, especially anything that makes the movies, you know, has to have a happy ending. Mm. And what were the specifics around what we were doing in the Philippines? Obviously, it was filled with tragedy, but how did we get there, and, and what are some of the statistics in terms of the number, a number of people who were killed? We'll never know. You know, uh, a general in the Iraq war said we don't do body counts, and we weren't counting the Philippine, mm. Filipinos dead. We were just mowing them down. Um, there's testimony of 
army regiments marching through the hills and you could just see uh, a trail of smoke with all the towns that they just, just wiped out. Waterboarding was uh, first perfected by the Americans in, in the Philippines. But um, we took the Philippines. The strategy was a naval strategy. We had to be a, a, a worldwide naval power. And Asia was the richest, was the source of great riches for Europe at that time. So we needed an Asian connection. So, wow, look at this. The Spanish Empire is weak. Spain is weak. And Spain has very valuable holdings. Philippines, Guam. Hey, let's take Hawaii from the Hawaiians. Then we can connect Philippines to Guam to Hawaii. Hey, let's build a canal here across the Isthmus, Panama Canal. And then we can connect that with other Spanish holdings, Puerto Rico and Cuba. So it was like a, a bunch of, a string of pearls going from Asia all the way through the Panama Canal to the Caribbean up to the east coast of America. That was the strategy, but America was sold, uh, wasn't told that. They were, they were told that uh, we were going to rescue the poor maidens of, of Cuba who were uh, uh, being put upon by Spanish men. The invasion of Cuba triggered this worldwide um, uh, invasion of other lands to perfect the strategy. Hmm. I know, too, that one of the themes that is, is seen throughout that, that book and also in your newest book is, is just uh, racial theories or the way that Americans historically have treated various races. And um, one of the points that I think was, was surprising to a lot of people who read The Imperial Cruise was just the extent to which Really, the, the early uh, 20th century leaders, particularly Theodore Roosevelt, were educated with these racial theories that uh, the, the Teutons from certain areas, I believe it was in the, the Germanic area of Europe, were basically destined to bring democracy to America and, and thereafter sort of had a green light to do whatever they wanted with the rest of the world. Um, to my knowledge, it seemed like that was the first time in your book that that sort of information had been uncovered um, in the history of Theodore Roosevelt and sort of the history of the, that time period in the U.S. How did you come across that, that kind of information, and how did it influence the Theodore Roosevelt when he became president? Well, I, I thank you for the compliment that I was the first one to uncover this. What I'd, I'd like to say it in another way is that I'm the first one that didn't cover it up. Hmm. Every book you read about Theodore Roosevelt, if they're doing research, it's obvious his racial uh, attitudes. But um, uh, to be polite and have happy ending history books, popular biographers don't deal with this. Mm-hmm. My my introduction was this: I it's the Imperial Cruise is about a cruise that Secretary of War. William Howard Taft, who was essentially the assistant president to Theodore Roosevelt, took this enormous cruise with congressmen and senators and the daughter of, of Theodore Roosevelt, Alice Roosevelt, and they went all over Asia, Hawaii, Philippines, China, Korea, and Japan. So I'm following the cruise. I'm in the San Francisco library reading Taft's speeches that he gave in San Francisco before they kicked off, and he's being asked about the Philippines and the war and our holdings. And he starts talking about how, well, the Filipinos don't have the benefit of the thousands of years of developing democracy 
that Americans have. Mm. So I'm thinking thousands of years. This guy's Yale-educated. Who's he talking about? Rome? <laughs> you know, Greece? But that's not thousands of years. And then I dug a little deeper, and I'm looking at Roosevelt, who's always talking, when they talk about the Philippines, says to the American public, you know, we have this thousands of years of democratic uh, uh, learning in our, in, in our beings, in our genes, and the Filipinos don't have that. So I looked at what they were teaching these guys at Harvard and Yale, and it was all race theory. Hmm. They were not racist. This was not a personal decision. It was race theory. Back in the uh, 19th century, science hadn't developed, hmm. and scientists were theorists. And it was very easy to believe that the white race um, was predominant, was superior, and was gaining on the colored races. All you had to do is look at a map. Hmm. And you saw that England had taken over uh, uh, India and much of Africa, and you saw that, you know, the Americans had spread across the United States. The explanation of that was that the, the whites were uh, superior, and a number of scientists measured heads and, and examined faces, and their, their, um, their findings fit the theory. Hmm. So it was, it was racial theory. The surprise that I had in writing The Imperial Cruise was that Theodore Roosevelt was basing his foreign policy on racial theories. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I know one of the other scenes in the book is, I believe this takes place in the White House after the Sino-Russian War, when delegations from both countries come to the White House and speak with Teddy Roosevelt to come up with some sort of a, a, a treaty, a, some sort of a, a peace agreement after the war. Um, fill in the context there of, of what, what happened in that war. I remember you writing that it was the largest war in history prior to World War I, if I remember correctly. Um, if that's correct, describe sort of the, the scale of what was happening there, what the Japanese were trying to do, and, and what ended up happening with, with Teddy Roosevelt at the White House. Well, the interesting thing about the Russo-Japanese War is that none of the war was fought on Japanese or Russian territory. Mm. It was fought over the uh, tiny country of Korea, which was the keystone country there in Asia. Mm-hmm. For Japan to expand into Asia, they had to take Korea. And the Russians wanted Korea. Japan couldn't let this happen. And they, uh, in a surprise attack that was a precursor to Pearl Harbor, bombed the Russians. And there was this enormous war, as I write, the biggest war uh, before World War One. Enormous. Some battles would have 50,000, 100,000 uh, uh, deaths. And in the negotiations, Theodore Roosevelt agreed to toss Korea to Japan, to give Japan a colony. He was assured by his Japanese friends, this was all in secret, that they would be happy by nibbling on Korea. But what Roosevelt actually did was gave uh, Japan the green light, the ability to expand. The problem that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had in the 1930s and 40s was an expanding Japan into Asia. That problem was greenlit, begun, by Theodore Roosevelt when he gave Korea to Japan. Hmm. Fascinating. I know in in looking at, at your most recent book, um, 
it's obviously been incredibly successful. The reviews are, are very favorable online from, from what I've been able to see. Um, I'm curious how you go from writing a, a four or 500 page book like the Imperial Cruise to your next subject. And I, I think there are some elements that are similar, uh, focus on Asia, some, some specific in, in details about the opium trade. How do you go, at, at what point do you realize that you have your next subject for a book? Is it, again, reading through dozens and dozens of new books that you come across and something sticks into your head? How, how, do, you, how do you determine that you found your next subject? I wish I knew the answer, because uh, right now I'm reading and reading and reading about some uh, happenings out in the Pacific, wondering if I have a book here, and, and, and I don't really know. But with the Imperial Cruise, it was Theodore Roosevelt's approach to Asia, and with the China Mirage, it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. And, uh, you know, the two Roosevelts had a lot to do with, with how we saw Asia and the history of how we got involved. My father went to war because of, uh, you know, because of a war with, um, with Japan. So I've been interested in the Pacific and Asia ever since I went to school in Tokyo in 1974. And I know the the basic idea of the mirage is is as I understand it your your belief that the, when America looks to China they uh, again speaking of sort of happy endings or happy perceptions have this idea that uh, China are little Democrats who look up to the United States as uh, a, a country they'd like to model at some point they'd like to Christianize like the U.S. at some point. Um, would love to see if there if there's anything you would add to that just general definition of of our China mirage and and what what its historical context is in terms of why that has persisted with with Americans. Well, it takes a whole book to to make that case, but it's it's really true. China is, you know, the 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 current thinking is China the Chinese are in the grasp of the Communist Party, which is holding them down and. If somehow they could throw off these top commies, you know, the democracy would bloom in, in China. And there's been this American belief since George Washington's time that the Chinese want to be more like us. Hmm. They'd be happier if they'd be uh, 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 more like us, Christianized, Americanized, democratized. But it's not true. But we have uh, gotten into wars over this belief that has no foundation in fact. Mm. You you walk you walk through in part of the history of that book the the history of, of King, King Hai Shek and, and Mao Zedong and, and how we had supported uh, almost like propagandists who were supportive of the of the notion that China was becoming more Christianized and, and admiring of, of the U.S. Um, do you believe that, that that idea is still persistent in, in the U.S. today with our leaders, that we have this uh, notion that China is, if, like you said, we could throw off the shackles of the Communist Party, that they would become a lot more like the United States? Do you, do you feel like that's still guiding the way that Americans think about China? Uh, not, not primarily, but I, I think it's still there. Now, let's go back to Chiang Kai-shek, that... The, the deal with Chiang Kai-shek is that his wife and his wife's sisters, the Song family, and a brother, TV Song, had all gone to school in the United States. Mm -hmm. the, these four kids were very wealthy and had spent many years in the United States. 
when no Chinese could get in. And they saw the China Mirage. Their, their friends in universities uh, spoke about the coming Christianization of China. They didn't talk about Chinese history. You know, there, were no Chinese, there was no course on China in the United States until the early 1930s in the United States. And uh, Harvard had the first one. So you couldn't go to college and learn anything about China. But what you learned was from the missionaries who said, hey, for a dollar more, for some more don- donations, China is going to become Christianized. Mm. So the Song family took this dictator, Chiang Kai-shek, and put this Christian front on him. And this is what was sold through Time Magazine, through a number of outlets, as uh, the coming of China. And if you were, you know, highly educated and rational and whatever, you were reading magazine stories about the coming Christianization of China. You, you read very little about the real China. Hmm. And what is that real China? It's, it's a large question, obviously, but for Americans that are interested in having a more realistic assessment of, of modern China or even the modern history, recent history of China, um, what, are, what are the important details that people need to keep in mind when making that assessment? Well... There's about 1.4 billion Chinese, so it's it's kind of it, you know it's kind of it's kind of hard to generalize. But there's this idea that uh, that China is going to change and it's going to become more Americanized. It can't continue to be so Chinese, but it's the largest civilization in history. It's it's the most successful civilization in history in terms of numbers and and longevity. And the Chinese are going to do things their own way. I know that one of the other points that you make in the book, and and I always found this fascinating when it was mentioned in the Imperial Cruise as well, was just the amount of East Coast wealth that had been contributed to some of America's best universities and where that money came from. Um, You go into some detail about the opium trade and the people, the Americans that were involved in the opium trade that led to really some of the, the larger buildings on campuses like Columbia and uh, I believe Yale and, and, uh, and a couple of others. Um, for people that are not really familiar with the opium trade or the history of the opium trade with China, uh, I would love to have you give a, a sort of an explanation of, of how long that trade took place and, and what it really did. It seemed to really damage the Chinese and um, had a, a lasting impact on, on their culture. Yeah, the it really sucked a lot of money out and, and did a number on the economy and the health of the Chinese public. But a few, you know, we, we think of the uh, opium wars and we think that the opium trade was all British, but the Americans were number two. Hmm. This was the most lucrative commodity trade of the 19th century. I'll repeat, bigger than cotton, bigger than wheat. You know, bigger than rice. Opium. It was an illegal drug. It was illegal in China. Of course, you know, cocaine, marijuana. This is very profitable if you can. Well, Britain and the United States, to a much lesser extent, but to the number two extent, had the instrument to get opium into China, and that was a navy. China was weak in naval terms. The British and American ships would uh, pockmark the Chinese coast, get into little inlets and, and bays, and offload their, their produce. They built uh, uh, 
uh, well, I can't remember what they were called, but they took ships and stabilized them and had like warehouses out in the ocean that the Chinese couldn't get to. And so this was an illegal trade. Who was involved? Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, never made a lot of money in his life. And the reason he could live as a wealthy man was because his grandfather, Warren Delano, was the opium king of China at one point. As you say, there's, there's buildings on Harvard's campus. I mean, Yale's Skull and Bones Society on the Yale campus is very, very famous. The Bush, the Bushes, uh, Secretary of State Kerry, so many of our leaders have gone through Yale Skull and Bones. Well, who pays for Skull and Bones? Yale doesn't. It's the Russell Trust. The Russell, the Russell family was the one, were the ones who hired Warren Delano. Yale is built on opium money. Columbia's library, the Lowe Library, that's named after Abiel Lowe. Who's Abiel Lowe? He was an uh, opium trader out there in China with Warren Delano. Princeton's uh, biggest early benefactor, Stephen Green, opium money. Uh, the first railroads in the East Coast were from opium money. Opium riches had a huge impact. But if you go up and down the East Coast of the United States and New England, You'll go to uh, museums that will talk about the China trade, and you'll see pieces of of China, and uh, but you won't see much mention of opium. Again, we like happy endings in our history, and the opium trade has been washed out of American history. And that fact, the fact that it, it isn't a well-known fact or historical note by people who, who read American history, is is it your belief, after writing these books and, and uncovering this information, that... Uh, that that's by design, that historians have intentionally left those pieces of information out of our history books because we like the happy endings, or is it just that it was difficult to find that information? Mm, difficult. I, wasn't, no, it's not difficult to find the information I present in these books. What's difficult is uh, having a book uh, read by the American public that doesn't have happy endings. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you know, look at these historical figures like Theodore Roosevelt, you know, the man on horseback and, and you know, the vigorous man, and you just, you do like Theodore Roosevelt. You cover up the fact that his asthma was never conquered within his, uh, within his lifetime. We don't, you know, when I... When I graduated from university, I put a resume together. On my resume, I never happened to mention the fact that I got a D in German at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't put it on my resume. Mm-hmm. Um, we, get, we don't like to put a, a lot of these negative uh, spots, these negative aspects out there. Mm. I'm curious, too, about in the way that America is dealing with China now, and obviously the the U.S.-China relationship seems like it's going to be one of the major themes of of the 21st century. Um, How do you think, based on your research and and some of the conclusions that you've come to in in the book, Americans that want to have a sane, rational perspective on China and China's reality uh, should think about what's, what's likely to happen in China over the next... 90 years or so. What, what, what is a, uh, you know, a democratic American who is interested in those values, but also wants to be realistic about what, what China is likely to 
how how China is likely to change. How how should Americans like that think in terms of how we approach our foreign policy with that country? I think we really have a real deficit in terms of understanding China. Hmm. I mean, um, there's just not a lot of people who go to China. Now, someone listening will say, no, my uncle just went on a cruise down the Yangtze just two years ago. And yes, there is some, uh, uh, there are some Americans going to China, I do admit. But in terms of us being the most powerful country in the world, and we have this huge Pacific coast, and in terms of China being the number one most populous country in the world, 1.4 billion people, one-fourth of humanity mm. is on the other Pacific shore. We're going to London and Rome and Paris um, a much more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if Obama's foreign advisors really know how to uh, use chopsticks. <laughs> I, I look at their resumes, and they all know how to go to uh, The Hague or to... Um, or to Geneva to negotiate in French. You know, they have degrees in, in Russian history, but very little uh, knowledge of China. Look, at it was almost illegal to know a Chinese person for most of American history. Mm. We had the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were people from all over the world coming into the United States. We had no concept of illegal immigration. Anybody could come until, hey, we said there's one type of people that we will not countenance in our democracy. There's one type of people who cannot come to our shores, and that's the Chinese. Chinese Exclusion Act from the 1880s until 1963. Hmm. That distorted our view. We have many fewer Chinese in the fabric of our nation than we do Irish uh, people or, or Germans. You know, we're a Eurocentric people. Hmm. That's fine. But... The, the challenge here is that it's a Pacific century and that China is going to have a leadership position. So I'm very enthusiastic about young kids going to China. Mm. It's the future. We have to understand them. And we can't, we have to stop only understanding them through the prism of our uh, democracy. Mm. We want them to have our values. We want them to you know, be more democratic, to be Christianized, to be whatever, that's not going to happen, folks. Mm. Last question I want to ask you is in also in relation to China. Um, coming out of all the research that you did for the book and, and now the publicity for the book and the success of the book, if you were to take one piece of information or, or one fact that you learned from the book that you wish was proliferated among the American population in terms of what they now know that they didn't know prior to reading the book, uh, what would that be? Well, that's a tough... I'd have to sit down and think about that. I, but off the top of my head, I would I would uh, say I, I hope by reading my books, people will continue to read books, <laughs> continue to... But really, but to search for uh, things they, they don't know. Uh, supposedly, the Internet is helping us uh, choose news that uh, we want to view, mm. that more and more we're reading opinions and articles that fit in with our pre- predetermined views. I hope by reading my books, people will... I, I, the a big reaction I get after someone reads my book when I get emails is, wow, I knew something of that history, but I never knew this, you know? Yeah. So... If uh, if that if that shakes things up and helps people get a different view, then I'm happy. 
Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time. It was really a pleasure to to meet you and, and talk to you. This is uh, this is a, a real pleasure for me, and uh, hope you keep it up. I really enjoy your books. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.